do want to remind our children, we do have those children bulletins there. It is our desire that our covenant children would learn to listen to God's word read and proclaimed and to track along with that, that uh, we all would hear God's word together and to be transformed by God's word. In fact, this morning, uh, God's word is very much the focus as we come to the oracles that are proclaimed by Balaam, the false prophet Balaam, uh, who is out there seeking money um, and is supposed to be this paid prophet who will uh, do whatever uh, it is that the highest uh, bidder asks him to do. Uh, But the Lord has other plans for him. And so he's even uh, been shaken by a talking donkey and yet still undeterred. He is attempting to try and still make money uh, to do what it is he's paid to do And yet the Lord is going to transform that and redeem the entire thing. Before we read any of this, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our God, it has been our privilege already to worship you in prayer and hearing your word read uh, in song and now to do so in study of your word. And so we pray that you might indeed send your Holy Spirit that your spirit would do a work that your spirit does of bearing witness to the reading and the preaching of your word that we would hear you speak to us by your word. And so as always, we pray for the preacher and know that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray, amen. This morning, we are in Numbers chapter 23, And in 23 and 24, there are ultimately five oracles that Balaam is going to proclaim unwittingly. We're going to look at the first two of those in those first 26 verses, and we'll get to the other three that come in rapid fire succession, and we'll look at those next week. And so here, the first 12 verses recount the first of these five oracles that Balaam will give in these two chapters. And there's a pattern to these first two oracles. There is the offering the oracle, and the outrage. And so as you listen to these 12 verses, note that pattern of the offering, the oracle, and the outrage. Listen to God's word. Balaam said, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam said, and the two of them offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I go aside. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet with me. Whatever he reveals to me, I will tell you. Then he went off to a barren height. God met with him and Balaam said, I have prepared seven altars and on each altar I have offered a bull and a ram. The Lord put a message in Balaam's mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went back to him and found him standing beside his offering with all the princes of Moab. Then Balaam uttered his oracle. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them. From the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my end be like theirs. Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them. He answered, must I not speak 
what the Lord puts in my mouth. Balaam is the mad, the money mad prophet, and Balak is the curse crazy king. And they make an offering in order to get what they want. Balaam wants money, and Balak wants Israel cursed. So why do they make an offering? They try to buy off God. Ancient Near East religions made offerings to appease their gods, to make their gods happy in order that the gods would then give them what they wanted. Is it not similar for so many modern religions? People, they try to buy off God, attempting to buy the favor of their gods with money or whatever good works they think their gods demand. But the God of the Bible is the one true God, and we cannot buy him off. We cannot win his favor by our efforts. But here's the good news. God has already been appeased. God has already been made happy. Jesus Christ is the perfect offering, and he has purchased our redemption. He has purchased God's love for us. And so any offerings we make are not to buy God's favor but in recognition of the favor we already receive because of Jesus Christ. We give a tithe, not so that God will give us more. We give a tithe in recognition that all we have is a gift from God already given to us. The good works that we do are not to get God to love us, but in grateful response to God's great love that has already been given to us. The right and true offerings presented by Israel anticipated that perfect offering that was to come. In fact, Proverbs 21, verse 27 says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? Balaam is the money-mad prophet, and Balak, the cursed, crazy king. That's why they made their offerings. We make our offerings as those who have been transformed by God's grace and blessing already received. And so that's the offering, and that takes us then to the oracle. And the oracle itself reflects three truths about Israel as a people blessed by God. They are a distinct people, they are a numerous people, and they are a victorious people. First, they are a distinct people. Look again at verse 9. From the rock peaks I see them. From the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Indeed, God's people are a distinct people who live apart. They live differently than the other nations. God's people were set apart as a holy nation by God and to continue to be distinct. In the Old Testament, there were several outward distinctions about Israel. All those strange laws that we read about in the Old Testament meant that you could spot an Israelite from a mile away. They wore different kinds of clothes. They cut their hair and beards in a different fashion. They even grew their crops differently. Their religious practices were very different than that of other nations. And so somebody could see an Israelite in the distance and say, oh, yep, that must be one of those distinct people. And so it's important for me to say this again. America is not the chosen nation of God. The church of Jesus Christ is the chosen nation of God. 
Old Testament Israel was the Old Testament church. They foreshadowed what the Apostle Paul would call the Israel of God. Now made up of Jew and Gentile, the New Testament church is the new Israel. The church of Jesus Christ does not consider ourselves one of the nations. We are made up of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. We are citizens of various nationalities, but our true citizenship is in heaven. And so America is not the chosen nation of God. The church of Jesus Christ is. Second, what we see here is Israel. They are a numerous people. Verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Remember way back in Genesis that we read about Abraham who was a man with no children. And yet God promised that one day he would have more descendants than a person could possibly count. And that promise has come true. Israel, as a nation, continually grew and grew and became increasingly numerous. And now the new Israel, the Christian church, has more people than you can count and continues to grow. It's good for us to remember that. We hear that often from our missionaries because in the United States, we see declining church attendance. But we sometimes forget that there have been whole generations of people in the United States who used to go to church but did not actually know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And yet also all around the world, we see the church grow. We see more and more people who are coming to Christ, especially in areas where there was once no Christians or so few that you could count them. And now they are innumerable. And so Israel is a distinct people, a numerous people. They are also a victorious people. The second part of verse 10, Balaam says, let me die the death of the righteous and may my end be like theirs. Indeed, there are temporal victories which anticipate our future and eternal victory. Eternal life and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. Indeed, through Jesus Christ, we are a victorious people. We are declared righteous. And so when we die the death as a righteous person, and our end then looks to the end of eternity with Christ. So we have this offering, we have this oracle, and then we have the outrage. Having heard God's word proclaimed, Balak's response is outrage. What have you done to me? Now, I'd like to criticize that answer, but doesn't that sound just like us? We are always concerned, first, first and foremost, of what it does to me. Our chief concern is often not whether it's true, whether it's from God, but how it affects me. Did I get what I want? Balak is the cursed crazy king, and he did not get what he wants. He clearly states what he wants. I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. And again, so often we also want people who will curse our enemies, who want to see our enemies fail. And there's a measure in which that's fine if our enemies are truly God's enemies. But so often our enemies are just that, our enemies. And that's how we think of them. If they are truly enemies of God, then God will defeat them. But if they are only our enemies, then God may have a bigger plan than we do. And in our world this day, in the increasingly polar, polarizing and politicized culture, we see one group that 
continually demonizes other groups with increasingly rude language. We are growing weary of such tactics, and yet we also continue to participate in them to our detriment and shame. If an enemy is truly God's enemy, then God will defeat them. If the enemy is only our enemy, then God may have a bigger plan than we do. We need to check our outrage. Balaam responds to the outrage by saying something very important in verse 12. Must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Again, Balaam is the money-mad prophet who wants the Lord to put a different message in his mouth. He wants to curse Israel so that he can get paid. However, he has received an actual revelation from the Lord, and against his will, he must speak the message put in his mouth. Hold that thought for a moment as we go to the second oracle and see the same sequence pattern as the first with the offering, the oracle, and the outrage beginning at verse 13. Then Balak said to him, come with me to another place where you can see them. You will see only a part, but not all of them. And from there, curse them for me. So he took him to the field of Zophim on the top of Pisgah. And there he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I meet with him over there. The Lord met with Balaam and put a message in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went to him and found him standing beside his offering with the princes of Moab. And Balak asked him, what did the Lord say? Then he uttered his oracle. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion that does not rest till he devours his prey and drinks the blood of his victims. Then Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. Balaam answered, did I not tell you I must do whatever the Lord says? Well, undeterred by the first oracle, Balak and Balaam again attempt to buy off God with another offering. And it is an expensive offering at that. Seven bulls and seven rams on seven altars isn't cheap. Their hope is and their thought is that if they just give enough, then they will win the favor of the gods and that God will give them the message that they want. Look, God, look how much we've given to you. Give us what we want in return. But that's not how it works with the true God. And so that offering, again, we have the oracle. And once again, this oracle reflects three truths. This time it is three truths about the God who blesses his people. That God is unchangeable, God is all-powerful, and God is merciful. God is unchangeable, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Did you know there are things that God cannot do? God cannot sin. God cannot be unholy. God cannot not be God. 
God cannot change. He is unchangeable. We call it covenant theology. It simply recognizes that God makes and keeps his promises because he is unchangeable. God made a covenant of grace, and Jesus Christ is the mediator of the covenant of grace, which means that God has made a promise to pour out his grace on his people. And the person and work of Jesus Christ guarantee that that promise will be fulfilled, and God will not change his mind. And so you cannot lose your salvation because it is never yours to gain or lose by your own accord. Jesus has accomplished our salvation, and he who began a good work will bring it to completion. In fact, Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but will raise them up at the last day. If you are truly saved, then you cannot lose your salvation, because your salvation does not rest in your hands. It rests in the sure hands of Jesus Christ. God is unchangeable, and God is all-powerful. Look at verses 22 and 23. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. There is no magic. There is no weapon. There is no nation. There is no person that can succeed against Israel. Not because Israel is so strong, but because the God of Israel is so strong. God fights for you. Sometimes we ask, why doesn't God do more about the problems of this world? Do we not realize the power of God that restrains all the evil that could pour forth? Sometimes we ask, why doesn't God do more about the problems that I face? Do we not realize the power of God that defeats so much of what would otherwise come at us? God fights for you. God restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Anything that gets through is because God has a bigger plan than we realize. The problems in this world and in our lives are those things that in God's perfect providence, he has ordained in order to reveal a larger redemptive purpose. And so God is unchangeable, God is all-powerful, and God is merciful. Verse 21, no misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, the shout of the king is among them. Now, it seems hyperbole to say no misfortune is seen, no misery observed. Of course, there will still be misery and misfortune in the future of Israel. But in this context, God is saying that with regard to Moab, there is not going to be misfortune for Israel. Rather, blessed victory is certain. It's also interesting that the word translated misfortune is ordinarily translated iniquity. And that's why the King James translates this He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. The lack of misfortune, the lack of misery that Israel will experience is not because they are good, but because God is good. God does not treat us according to our goodness, but according to the perfect goodness of Jesus. Jeremiah 31, in speaking about the realities of the new covenant because of Jesus Christ, the Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And on this communion Sunday, it is good for us to remember that the biblical word remember is not a memory word, but a covenant word. 
remember is a covenant word. God cannot forget, but because of the covenant of grace, he chooses to remember our sin no more. And so Jesus says that we are to receive the bread and the cup and the communion feast in remembrance of him. This does not simply mean that we bring Jesus to our memory, but that we eat and drink in covenant with Christ. We are covered by the covenant of grace. We receive Christ and all his benefits in the sacred supper of the covenant of grace. Remember is a covenant word. Now, because of his mercy, God does not remember our sins, but remembers Jesus. In the second part of verse 21, we read, the Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. And this week, that truth is exactly what the children learned in vacation Bible school. When things go wrong, what is it, kids? God is with us. When you need help, God is with us. I hear you. When you're afraid, God is with us. When you're lonely, God is with us. When you're thankful, God is with us. Now, certainly God is everywhere. God is always with us. However, there are times when it is especially important for us to realize God is with us. When things go wrong, when you need help, when you're afraid, when you're lonely, and when you're thankful. In communion, God is especially with us, nourishing our very soul. And no sooner does Balaam finish this oracle and Balak in outrage basically responds, shut up. Verse 25, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. Balaam, just stop talking. You're making everything worse for me. Just shut up. Don't curse, don't bless. Just stop talking altogether. And once again, Balaam replies, did I not tell you I must do whatever the Lord says? Indeed, against his will, Balaam must speak whatever message the Lord puts in his mouth. So here's the question for us. If a money-mad prophet, a pagan prophet, must speak the message put in his mouth, even against his will and desire, then shouldn't we, who profess faith in Christ, absolutely speak the message of God? Balaam did not want to speak God's word because he's losing out on a paycheck. Should we not desire to speak God's word? The message that is put in Balaam's mouth is to bless God's people. If the pagan prophet was compelled to bless God's people, then shouldn't we who are a part of God's people desire to bless God's people? But it is easy to criticize the church. It is easy to criticize church leaders and church people. It's easy to criticize the way the church does things. It's easy to criticize the mistakes the church makes. It's easy to criticize the church of the past and the church of the present. It's easy to criticize the way other churches do things. It is easy to criticize the church. Let us be weary of doing so and certainly take no profit or pleasure in cursing God's people. Rather, may the message in our mouth be to speak God's word and to bless God's people. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that we are to speak new revelation from God. The false prophets that we read about in Jude claim to have new revelation about God, and those new revelations are always appealing and attractive, full of lies that people will easily buy and entertain. False prophets today will say things like, 
close your Bibles and just let God speak to you. No, no, no. Open the Bible to have God speak to you. Know God's word so that the message in your mouth is God's word. Passages that you've memorized and also the right word at the right time. That's truly what it is to be a prophet today is to simply speak the right word at the right time to the right person. Have you ever noticed that when we talk about other people's sins, how quick we are to turn to the law and the commandments of God? But when we talk about our sins, we're quick to turn to passages about God's forgiveness and grace. Open the Bible to have God speak to you and be equipped to open the Bible to have God speak to others through you. And may the truth set us free. Amen.